I hope it's okay if I uh, admit to you guys that there have been times, even since being a pastor, I've struggled with my faith. I don't know if you ever have questioned whether or not you really believed or not, but I, then, then I thought it would be so much easier if God took the mystery out of it and just like spoke to me and like just could like say something to me. But like, 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 like I don't, not necessarily face to face, definitely not in the middle of the night at the foot of my bed, then I'd poop my bed. Like not, not that situation, but like I would like, like if I'm like watching a sunset, on a lake or at the beach or on a mountain, and like I'm, I'm praying to God, if God just like whispered in, in, in my head, Sean, I'm here, I see you, I love you, right? Like that would, be, that would be weird, but it would be like, I would never doubt again, right? Has anybody else thought, I just wish God would make it real easy for me just one time, just like, and he could go right back to mysterious, but just like one day, don't be mysterious at all. That way I can put this to, to, to rest. I never have to doubt again. Has anybody else ever struggled with that or thought that? Raise your hand. Just want to see who the pagans are on, on, on the Easter morning. Right. Well, there's this random detail in the Easter story that leads me to believe that even if God made it easy for me one time, like, and truthfully, like spoke to me audibly, and I knew for a fact it was God, I would probably still find a way or a reason in, uh, later on, later on to doubt again. We're going to be looking that, at that in, in just a second. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what circumstances uh, uh, brought you today. I, I am very, very glad that you're here or what you believe about the circumstances around uh, the, the person, the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus. I don't think there's any credible historian that doubts the existence of a Jewish man who lived in first century Judea named Jesus, who had disciples who walked around and taught during his lifetime and then was crucified by Romans, whose followers then began telling everybody that he had resurrected from the dead. In fact, we have evidence from one of the Caesars just 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus where he references the followers of Christos who, that's what he referred to him. He said, the followers of Christos who claimed that he had resurrected from the dead. So there's nobody who, real, no credible historian, doubts the existence of Jesus, uh, that, that he was killed by the Romans, that he was crucified, and that his, his followers uh, told everybody that he is resurrected from the dead. I guess the question would then be whether or not uh, his disciples were telling the truth. And, and last year, we went over the three different reasons why outside the Bible, I uh, believe, as a, as a, well, all of us think that we're rational, intelligent adults, probably, but... Uh, uh, why I, as definitely one of the rational, intelligent adults, right, uh, can can believe in the in the resurrection, and uh, so we're we're not going to go over over that ag- again today. Uh, but it's it's that detail that's that's in the story um, uh, that I want us to be looking at today. Jesus tells his followers the same thing three times in a row. They they know that it's Jesus. In fact, the first time that he tells them this, it's as it's it's after they've already acknowledged that they believe that he is the Messiah. God who shows up in the human story as the son, right? Like they, they acknowledge that Jesus had said to his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people think that you're Elijah reincarnated. Some people think that you're John the Baptist, you're possessed by the spirit of John the Baptist after he was uh, beheaded by Herod Antipas. And, and then Jesus goes, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the, son, the Messiah, the son, the son of the living God, right? It's, it's right after this that Jesus says in, in uh, Mark, Mark chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be there. Uh, Mark chapter 8. So I'm going to, Jesus tells them this in Mark 8. He tells them this again in Mark 9. And he tells them this again in Mark 10. And so he tells them each time. And each time he tells them, he actually gives them 
more information. And you would think that if God was going to tell you something once and you knew for a fact that it was God, that you would, you would lock in on that, right? Uh, but if God told you something three times, then for sure, bro, like you would like, like that, that my whole life is about that, right? Like that would be, that would be the thing. Uh, but Mark chapter 8, here's where we're at, verse 31. Then Jesus, this was after that conversation with the disciples who people say to him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the Jewish elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. And he told them that he was going to be killed, but three days later he would raise from the dead. So he tells them this, Right? This is a, this is a, uh, like it's, it's, it's before they're at, they actually, after this, they then leave and they go to Jerusalem where all of this actually ends up happening. So before they leave, they're here in Galilee. And then Jesus tells all of his disciples, now here's what's going to happen. We're about to go to Jerusalem. And when we get there, uh, many terrible things are going to happen to me. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, uh, rejected by all of our Jewish leaders and then I'm, I'm going, I'm going to suffer terrible. I'm going to be tortured. Uh, and then I'm going to die, but, but I'm going to raise from the dead, uh, on the third day. And it's almost like that goes over their head. There's no questions that are asked or anything. Uh, and so they, they start traveling. They're about halfway there in Mark chapter nine. And this is the second time Jesus tells them this. He says, uh, Mark chapter nine, verse 31, uh, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. So he said to them, the son of man, by the way, it's the second time he refers to himself in the third person is the son of man. And the reason why he does this, this is Jesus's favorite reference uh, for himself in the third person. And because it connects to uh, one of the Jewish prophets, Daniel. Uh, you guys have heard of the Jew Jewish slavery in Egypt. They had a second slavery period and that was in Babylon. And Daniel, uh, one of the Jewish guys, uh, writes about some about their, their, their slavery in, in Babylon. You get the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. So even if you're not religious, you probably heard of Daniel in the lion's den. Well, halfway through his narrative of that time in history, he starts talking as prompted by the Holy Spirit about the Messiah, God who will show up in the human story and rescue mankind from what we've done to each other and what we've done to this world, right? And then he refers to, the, to God who shows up in the flesh as the Son of Man. He's emphasizing that God is showing up uh, as, as a person, Son of Man. So since everybody recognized that Daniel's talking about the Messiah when he shows up, using that phrase, the Son of Man, Jesus refers to himself in that way as, as the Son of Man. So that's why that phrase is there. So here's that second time. Uh, Jesus said to them, this in verse 31, he said, uh, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. So now he's bringing up new details. So the new detail that he's bringing up is that he's going to be betrayed, which means that it's going to be one of them because you can't be betrayed by an enemy. Enemies do what enemies do. The only person that can betray you is a what? A friend. A friend is the only one who can betray you or a family member, right? A friend or a family member, like somebody close to you. So like, so when uh, the first time he told them this, uh, in the last chapter, he doesn't give them that detail. Now he's adding the detail, by the way, I'm going to be betrayed. And, and now they know, holy crap, this is one of us. And that does catch their attention. Uh, that, that they, so they, they missed it the first time, but, but now, now, now they're getting it because he used the word betrayal, uh, to this, this group of people. So now they're thinking, holy cow, like there's a, there's a snake. There's, there's a snake in my boots. Sorry. I had to say that. That was kept, that was, uh, doesn't matter. All right, anyway, anybody who's got little kids, you remember that. All right, uh, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the, hands of the hands, into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. Then verse 32 says, they didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. 
So they're, they're listening now, but they, they don't know what he means by this. Uh, so he says, all right, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you guys. Like somebody's, some, somebody's going to betray me and uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to suffer terrible things. I'm going to be rejected by all of the, the Jewish authorities. And uh, then I'm, I'm going to be killed. And, uh, but on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're like, hmm, I wonder what he, what he means by that. He goes, all right, let me, let me tell you again. Uh, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. Um, I'm going to be, suffer many terrible things, and I, I will be killed. I'll be rejected, and then I'll be, I'll be killed. But on the third day, uh, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back from the, from the dead. So, so don't worry about it. And they're like, man, that's a crazy metaphor. I wonder what he, like, what's that a symbol of? Now, the disciples said that they don't know what he means. Well, he meant exactly what he said, but they thought that there was some type of mystical meaning behind this, obviously. How else could they not understand the words that are coming out of his, his mouth, right? So then they're obviously talking to each other because it says that none of them wanted to ask him because they were afraid, which meant that they had a conversation about that. Like, that was weird, right? Like, you heard him say that? Like, I thought we were going to Jerusalem because he's the Messiah and he's going to set us free from our greatest oppression, which is the Romans. They didn't realize that their greatest oppression was a sin that was in them, not the sin that was around them, right? And truthfully, we also think that our biggest problems is the crap around us rather than the crap in us, right? So they, we, we, we totally get in that. And often we'll go to God to fix all the stuff around us when God's most interested in fixing the stuff that's going on in, in, inside of us. So there's, there's some similarities there, but so they're talking about it and they're like, well, well, you, you should ask him what he meant by that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to ask him. I'll look like an idiot. Everybody knows you're already an idiot. You ask him, right? Like I, these kinds of conversations are happening. Then he tells them again in Mark 10. So he's already told them in Mark 8. He's already told them in Mark 9. And he tells them again in Mark 10. And then he keeps adding detail. So here's what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Like we're almost there. We're about to go to Jerusalem. They're like a couple of days out from Palm Sunday. When they get to the Mount of Olives, that's where he gets the donkey. They go down the hill and everybody's laying down their palm branches and everything and laying their coats on the road. And then he goes into, in, into the, the, the sheep gate there on the uh, uh, north, north side of the city. Um, uh, but he, so he says, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed. So he keeps that detail. Uh, to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They are the ones who will sentence him to die, but the Jews are not allowed to actually execute anybody under Roman law. Only the Romans were allowed to kill somebody. So they could sentence him all they wanted, but they weren't allowed to kill him. So if they want Jesus to die, they're going to have to get the Romans involved, which then Jesus says, they will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. The Romans will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him with a whip and they will kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And the disciples, no doubt, are going, I wonder what he means by this. Like, is there like a secret message in here? So then you would think, you would think that if Jesus has already told them this three times, that they would be locked in on it. And then as all of these things begin to happen, as, as the on, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he was betrayed by Judas, uh, Judas betrayed him with a kiss. It's famous. It's in a U2 song in the name of love. U2 made Jesus famous. No, I'm not really. Okay. Um, uh, but in, in, in the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, he gives them one more hint. And we're not, we're not reading that for the sake of time. Uh, but, he, but he talks about betraying him. And so when Jesus is going from Galilee uh, down to Jerusalem, he's got his disciples, but he's got other followers too. At the Last Supper, it's just the 12 disciples. 
And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And then, and then Peter's like, Jesus, though I die, I would never betray you. And he goes, Peter, like you're going, you're going to deny even knowing me. And he goes, I would never do that. And he said, before the rooster crows two, to- two times, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. And Peter gets really upset. And, and then Jesus says, but one of you will betray me. So they're like, well, who, which one of us is going to be- betray you? And so Jesus goes, this, <laughs> this is a crazy detail. Uh, Jesus goes, it's the one to whom I dip this bread and the wine after I've eaten it. So then Jesus eats the bread, dips it in the wine, and then hands it to Judas. That's in the Bible. Judas takes it, he eats it, dips it, and hands it to the next guy. And then they all go, and then they all go so which one is it? That's in the Bible. Like, Jesus did not pick first-rounders. Can I just put that out there? I'm just saying that. There's a few busts in his draft, is, is all, all I mean to say. Uh, dude, these people are clueless. And then, so Jesus, there, he's in the garden. with the. Oh, and here's the other thing. Right after they say, Jesus, so which one is it? He looks at Judas and he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And he stands up and he walks out to go to the high priest to betray Jesus. And the Bible says that the other disciples just thought that he was going to go take care of widows and orphans because he was the one they picked to keep track of the money. That's true. Judas was the guy they elected to be the treasurer. Super smart guys. You got the gift of discernment, those fellows do. Um, so Jesus is in the garden. Uh, they're praying. He's got the 11 disciples. Judas shows up with the priests uh, and, and then kisses them on the cheek. And, 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 and not like the priests didn't know who, who he was. They'd seen him preach all that week in, in Jerusalem. So they, they knew who he was. So, uh, but, he, but he kisses them on the cheek. Peter kept his word, by the way. Remember he said, though I die? Peter, who's a fisherman, brought a tiny sword, the Bible tells us. And he pulled out his sword. <laughs> Homeboy was packing heat, right? Right? So he, he pulls this thing out. And the Bible says he chops off. So there's a servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus. This guy goes, goes famous for all of time uh, because uh, Peter, Peter lunged at him. Um, so Peter, the Bible says that Peter chopped off his ear. Was Peter aiming for the ear? If he lopped off his ear, what was Peter aiming for? His head. Peter, the fisherman, <laughs> though I die, I'll not betray you. And then he goes to you know, swing at Malchus, and Malchus is like this, and he knocks his ear, like just, woo. Gets his ear off. Probably got some other skin around that. The Bible says that Jesus bent over, picked up the dude's ear, and put it back on his head. And then Peter dropped his sword and ran away. That's really what happened. That's, that's really what happened. But So then he's arrested by the, the, the leading priest. Now, the only person who gets to go with the, the, the high priest and Jesus is John. Uh, John, the beloved disciple. John gets to go because he's the nephew of the high priest. So he's kind of like got his get out of jail free card. So he can walk anywhere he wants because he's related to the dude. And he knows the dude ain't going to do nothing because his mama is his sister, right? So he's like exempt. So John actually goes with him. Peter follows from a distance because remember, he said, I'm not, I'm not going to deny him. Uh, and then, and then Jesus is then, there's like a little kangaroo court situation happening where they, they bring up false charges against them. The, the false witnesses are proven uh, to be false. So somebody just straight up ask him, uh, like you, like everybody says that you're a God. Are you or not? And he says, it is as you say. And they're like, blasphemy. What more do we need to hear? He needs, he needs to be killed. Now, this has all happened after they've ripped 
whipped out his beard, tied his hands uh, uh, above him, and then, and then worked his body. The, the soldiers worked his body and stuff. And so I'm thinking that if, if you're a disciple and you'd heard Jesus say, this is what's going to happen, and all of that stuff begins to happen, that that would make your faith stronger, not weaker. Right? Like you go, holy cow. Like he was just, he was just arrested by the leading, the elders, the priests, and the teachers of religious law. Holy cow. Like it ain't falling apart. It's fallen into place, right? And then when they sentence him to die, you would think that that would actually increase their faith because they know where this is going because everything is happening exactly as Jesus has already said three different times. So you would think that their faith would be growing and they would become more and more confident because now as they see him marched in handcuffs across from Caiaphas, the high priest's house, to King Herod's palace because only the Romans could execute him, you would think that the disciples would get more and more bold and confident because they know where all of this is going, but the exact opposite is happening. The exact opposite is happening. He goes over to Herod's and they do everything that Jesus said they were going to do. They mock him. They spit on him. Uh, they play a game, a torture game with him that the Roman soldiers, like when you look at all the stuff that the Romans did to Jesus, it actually matches a game that the Roman soldiers, uh, the executioners would play with their soldiers that were condemned to die. We talked a little bit about that last week if you were here, so I'm not going to go into that again. And then they, they then Jesus is, is led up to the cross and then, he, and then, he's, and then he's crucified. And so you would think that since Jesus has already gone into detail about every bit of this uh, over the last several weeks, at least three different times, that, that everybody would know what's going to happen. So when, when Jesus is crucified, you would think that they would walk into, uh, like for us, it's in our kitchen behind the pantry door. That's where we keep our calendar. Do you guys have a calendar anywhere on the wall? Or does everybody just use their phones now? Anybody use paper calendars? All right, 12 of us. All right. You would think that they would go to their, you, you would think that they would open up their pantry door and get out that big marker and then, and then they would like cross. Why, why do we do this? Does anybody lick a marker? Like if I want to pretend like I'm writing something, what do you do? Like everybody does this. We, we're like, if we're like, if we're, you know, if, if we're like, you know, air guitar, you know, but if like you're air writing, you always go like this. I don't know why we do that. But you would go to your calendar and you would go one down. And then on Saturday morning, you would wake up. Because everything has happened exactly like Jesus said it was going to happen. You would wake up on day two and you would go, oh, yeah, baby, two down, right? And then, or maybe you'd be counting backwards, three, two. And then you wake up on Easter morning and bro, you're like, all right, somebody needs to head up to Party City, right? Because this place is going to get awesome, right? Like you'd wake up, you'd start walking down, like you'd walk out of your house with like, like, like noisemakers and cowbells, right? Like that's what the resurrection needs, needs more cowbell, right? There's just like something, like just like you'd be crazy excited and pumped about this. You would. But I want to show you what actually happened. Ready? So if you've got your Bible, now we're in, we're in Luke. Luke chapter 24. Or Luke, yeah, Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, verse 1, says this. But very early on Sunday morning, the women uh, went to the tomb taking spices uh, that they had prepared. I'm going to stop right there because uh, here's, here's why this is important. Uh, because what's supposed to happen uh, when somebody is crucified uh, by the Romans, when, you, when, you're, when the Romans condemn you to death, you lose all rights as, as a person. You don't get a nice family burial. There's no funeral for you. Uh, in fact, when you're crucified, after you're dead, they take your body off the cross and they throw you in the city dump or on the burn pile. 
And if anybody comes and gets your body, they're executed. So like that's what's supposed to happen to the body of Jesus. What's supposed to happen to the body of Jesus is that he's, he's thrown in the burn pile. Uh, the reason why this doesn't happen, uh, according to John, and I think it's John 17, I think it is, or maybe John 20, I'm not exactly, it's right in there. It's toward the end of the book of John. Uh, but the reason why this doesn't happen is that there's, there's two of the high Jewish councils, two of the, two of the Jewish elders are actually followers of Jesus. And it says, but they were secretly followers of Jesus because they were afraid of what other people would think. So they were actually in the room when Jesus was being tortured and never stood up for him at all. And there's probably like a, a huge conflict of conscience, but that they just kept pushing aside because they were just afraid of what everybody else would think. Before you guys judge them too harshly, if you're a person of faith, there's probably been a time or two when you've backed off of your faith also because you were afraid of what other people would think. Well, you're not the first one to have done that. You're not the last person who's ever done that. Both of these guys had done it. One of the guy's names is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man. Then the other guy is a guy named Nicodemus. He's also a wealthy man. Now, Nicodemus is a little bit more famous than Joseph of Arimathea because Nicodemus had a conversation with Jesus back in John chapter 3 at night because he was also afraid of the Jews or whatever everybody else was thinking. He was afraid of losing his status in his culture, in his community. And Jesus had this famous conversation with him where he said, you must be born again. So if you've ever heard the phrase born again, that phrase comes from the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, who was one of the leading elders of the Jews, but secretly because he was afraid of what everybody would think. But after Jesus has died, they've had it. Now they don't stinking care who knows. And because they are the leading elders of the city, they have access to Pontius Pilate that regular Jewish people don't get. So they come in and they cash in all their chips and they ask for a personal favor. And he says, that we, would, we have a favor to ask of you, Pilate. And he says, all right, what's, what, what do you request of me? And he said, we want the body of Jesus. Now this is against Roman custom. So he's got to make a political decision. Does he break with tradition by letting them save the body of Jesus and then pacifying the elders? And the city is very tense right now. Or do I keep with Roman custom and risk the possibility that these guys might get mad and stir up the people to rebel against me? Roman gets upset, Rome gets upset, and I lose my head. All right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let them have that stupid body. So they give Jesus the body. The Bible says that they take the body to one of their tombs. So one of them had gotten a tomb. It was a new tomb. They'd never had any dead body in there before. When the women saw where they were taking the body... The Bible says that they ran home. This is at the end of Luke chapter 23. They run home to prepare the spices. Now, why weren't the spices already prepared? Because they were expecting that Jesus' body would be thrown on the burn pile like all other crucifixion victims. But now they see that his body is not going to be thrown on the burn pile. He's actually going to be put in a tomb. Now they're like, holy cow, we, somebody needs to prepare that body according to Jewish customs. So they run home to prepare the spices. What they don't know is that when Nicodemus and Joseph put the body in the tomb, that Nicodemus did come prepared. The Bible says in John that he wrapped the body of Jesus with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, which would have been imported from India. So this is like crazy, crazy, crazy money that this guy's 75. There's no way in the world these women, like these women would be bringing like a little something, something, whatever they could scrounge up. But, 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 but Nicodemus had brought 75, like 75 pounds of, of, this, of this perfume. And what the Jews would do is they didn't embalm the bodies. What they would do is they would clean the body. They would clean the body. 
uh, and, and make it perfectly clean. And then they would, they would anoint the body with all of the, these, these perfumes and ointments, and they would wrap them with linens, and they'd put another layer of the ointment, and they'd wrap it with linen, another, and they would just keep wrapping the body uh, like this. And then they would seal the tomb, and then they would come back on the one-year anniversary. And on the one-year anniversary, the body's been fully decayed. Uh, in, in this open-air tomb. And they would go in, and they would unwrap the bones, and then they would put the bones in like a, a stone ostuary, like the little little white box. It, you'd carve on the outside the name of your family and maybe something that they had done in their lifetime or were known for, and then you would stack that box on top of all of the box of bones of all of their other ancestors. So that's, that's what's supposed to happen. So they wrap Jesus' body in these spices. And the Bible says, meanwhile, at the end of Luke chapter 23, that the women who'd gone home to prepare the spices, by the time they got everything needed for preparing the body, it, the sun had already set. So now it's already past, oh, now it's already the Sabbath. And so they can't go back carrying this stuff because that would be breaking the Sabbath. So now they have to wait until Sabbath is over to go and do the job that they don't know has already been done. So they see where the body's going, but they don't know that he's already been prepared for burial. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone and prepared the spices. That, that's redundant. It doesn't make any sense unless they didn't know that, that Nicodemus had already prepared for that. So that's where we're at in Luke chapter 24. That's why the ladies are, are bringing spices on Sunday morning. Um, so, But early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Here's another thing. If everything that had happened uh, happened exactly like Jesus had said would happen, then this is the third day, and he said on the third day he would rise from the dead. So he died on Friday, was dead on Saturday, so he's supposed to rise on Sunday. Now, if everything happened exactly like Jesus said, what did Jesus say would happen on the third day? That he would what? He would rise from the dead. So what the heck are these girls doing bringing spices? Are spices for dead bodies or living bodies? For dead bodies, which means that they did believe Jesus or they did not believe Jesus. Right. Now, that's a discrediting detail. That's one of the other reasons why I believe in the narrative of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if I'm making it up, I'm not going to put in there that his closest followers never believed him anyway. I'm not going to put that in there. That makes him look worse, not better. So they show up with all these spices because, again, they've been told three times. I, I would think being told three times would be enough. And then seeing everything else, if Jesus said, these are the ten things that are going to happen to me, and the tenth one is raising from the dead, and you saw one through nine happen, that you'd show up on Sunday morning ready for number ten. But they don't. So here's what happens. Uh, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they did not find the body of, of Jesus. Now, there's three things I'm going to wrap this up by, by, by learning from, from these ladies. Uh, the first one uh, is, is this, that you, you, need to, you, need to, you need to look for God. You need to look for Jesus. Seek Jesus. That's the first point. Seek Jesus. These women end up becoming the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, which would have been a poor choice from a legal standpoint because at that day in human history, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. So technically, they're not legally credible witnesses anyway. So why did God pick them? Like, why were they the ones to get to be the... Like, think about it. If we just go back two weeks ago, right? Read all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the life of Jesus, all the way up into the resurrection of Jesus. And I said, pick which three of them you think are going to be the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. You would have picked Peter, James, and John, right? Yes or no? 
If you were to pick the most likely people to be the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, you might pick, I don't know, Doubting Thomas, right? Thaddeus, Bartholomew, James the Lesser, Simon the Zealot. There's five disciples, by the way, that it never says that they did or said anything in the whole Bible. Like, that's crazy. Like, I love that God picks super shy people who don't like to talk to people. Like, that's, they don't do anything in the, in the whole Bible. But you would have thought one of the disciples. You wouldn't have picked them. So why are they the ones who get to see the resurrection first? There's one reason, and it's not complicated, because they were the only ones who came looking for him. That's it. They were the only ones who came looking for him. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not magic. There's a verse in the Bible, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, that says this. Uh, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you, you will find me. So they're the ones who are looking. So since they're the ones who are looking, they're the ones who find. The truth is, there's some of us who showed up today, metaphorically speaking, you walked in with your arms crossed, your ears closed, and your heart hard. And one of your evidences that there is no God is that you've never found them. But if you're going to be completely honest, you've never even honestly looked. Like God is fine not being found by proud people. Like you think God is okay letting every single one of us sit in our own ignorance and arrogance. But this verse says, Jeremiah 29, 13, if you, if you even looked for me wholeheartedly, you would find me. I am 100% convinced that the most stone-cold atheist in here, if he or she would be willing to set aside, right? Set aside your biases for one year and give it an honest, an honest intellectual attempt, you would find God. You'd come back here differently next year. You'd come back different. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says, God's purpose, this is in the New Testament, God's purpose was for the nations. They didn't have a UN. There's no national boundaries like we think of them now. So whenever you see the word nations in the New Testament, they're talking about all people groups, all skin pigmentations, levels of melanin, languages, people groups, all continents. It is God's purpose for everyone everywhere to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The author of the proverb, Proverbs chapter 8, is quoting God who says, I love all who love me, and those who search will surely find me. God says, I promise you. Bro, test him. He said, if you actually, with your whole heart, try finding me, I promise you, you will find me. I promise you. If you search for me, I promise you I'll make myself known to you. I promise. So there are those of us who honestly, like every other Easter, you're not going to get nothing from this. Because, bro, you came not wanting anything from this. But there are others of you who in the bottom of your heart, sorry, <clears throat> you freaking need God like you've never needed nothing in your whole life. And you came here looking. And what I think God would say to you is, bring it. I'm right here. That's what he would say to you. 
That's the first thing. Number one, if you want to find God, you're going to have to seek him. Seek him and he will be found. The second thing I learned from these ladies is at some point, you're going to have to trust him. Luke chapter 24, verse 3, as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling clothes. Matthew just tells us, no mystery, they're angels. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day? The angels are like, were you guys not paying attention? Like he told you guys three times. Like the angels are actually getting sarcastic. Like, do you not remember when he said? Like they're, they're like being fresh. They're like the angels in heaven are flabbergasted that these women, you actually brought spices? Like, did you not listen to anything? Holy cow, what is wrong with you people? Like that's the angel's perspective. Did you not hear anything he told you? He's not here. Like he's living. Why would you come looking for a living person among dead people? And the angels are like, you humans don't make no sense. Right? That's where they're at. And then it says, and then they remembered, oh, that wasn't a metaphor. But like them, I think a lot of us are still looking for the living among the dead. We're looking for life among dead things. The truth is, with every single one of us, there are times in our life when we're alone with our thoughts. It doesn't happen as much any, anymore now because of our cell phones, right? So we're constantly distracted. So for Lent, I was going to fast from my cell phone and social media. That lasted a day. I totally screwed up Lent this year. I failed. I was horrible at it. We stay distracted. But every once in a while, your phone runs out of battery. And you're alone with your thoughts right? And you're not in front of Netflix. So you can't keep yourself eternally distracted. You may be somewhere alone sitting in traffic, the radio's off, and you start thinking. And then all of these thoughts and questions start popping up into your mind that leave you feeling a sense of, I don't know, emptiness, or maybe the feeling that you get is regret. You start thinking about some of the worst things you've ever done. Or maybe you think of shame, and the stuff that you did willingly but regretted afterwards, and maybe you feel regret. But like you start feeling a certain kind of way, and there's, you recognize that there's a brokenness deep on the inside of you that you can't fix. And talk to all of the super accomplished people in the world. Like it was Tom Brady who said after his fourth Super Bowl, I thought that this would make me happy. So why is it that I'm still not? Like chase everything you want to chase and... Get everything you want to get. Who's the one that says, uh, I hope, Jim Carrey said, I hope everybody gets everything they've ever wanted so after they get it, they realize it wasn't enough. Like, go ahead. Like, we try to fix that brokenness, right? Like, we're looking for life, something to bring life back to the dead places on the inside of our heart. But the problem is, we're looking among dead things for living things. And the truth is, the only place where you'll find the way to create life back in the dead places of your heart is if you go to the one who created life in the first place. Because you try to like cover over the dead parts in your heart. With what? For some, it's alcohol. For some, it's drugs. For some, it's accomplishments and success. Likes on social media for other people. 
money for other people, sex for other people, recognition from other people, esteem, like, like, esteem, esteem. Like, but we're all, like, we're trying to, we're chasing something to fix the broken part in our heart. And what I'm telling you is, you won't find life among all the dead stuff this world has to offer. The only place that you'll be able to go to get the dead parts of your heart turned back on is God. So I think the angels would look at you and say, why are you chasing all this crap to fill the broken places in your heart? You're looking for life among the tombs. And it doesn't make any sense. John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Why does the good shepherd sacrifice his life for the sheep? So that they can actually find a rich and satisfying life. And if the Christians you know don't experience a rich and satisfying life, then they're probably not actually living their life the way Jesus would live their life in their shoes. John 7, 38, anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scriptures. Declare, rivers of living water will flow from your heart. And bro, some of your hearts are freaking bone dry. Dry. And Jesus said, you'll never find rivers of living water anywhere else but me. These women came, in, came to the tomb expecting nothing out of the ordinary. They heard good news and chose to believe it. Today, You've come for your own reasons to this Easter service. And I've reminded you of the scriptures and things that you've probably already heard before. I'm not telling you anything new. But maybe like these ladies, you just kind of forgot why it matters. And I'll tell you why it matters. Because you've sinned against your own conscience. You know you failed. You and I have both broken God's laws. How many times? How many times? Dude, I can pick one sin that I've committed more than all the other sins combined. Right? Like you've got a pet sin. I do too. Every single one of us will stand before God as judge, who's a good judge, and he'll ask one question. Are you innocent or guilty of breaking my laws? Are you innocent or guilty? See, we've been taught by religion that as long as you're a good enough person, you're good will outweigh the bad, and the judge will ignore that you're guilty. What judge ignores guilty people? Crooked judges. The judge doesn't care if you coach Little League. All he wants to know is, did you rob that bank or not? Are you innocent or guilty? Does it matter how many other hours you put in as a candy striper? Google it if you don't know what that is. It's a thing that used to exist. It was just the first thing I thought of because I dated a girl who was a candy striper who became a nurse. And doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All that matters is, are you innocent or guilty? And when you say guilty before God, if God is good... He can't let you go. He can't. That would make him bad. The only person who could take the place of somebody who's guilty is somebody who is what? Innocent. A guilty person can't take the place of another guilty person. If the judge would even allow someone else to take your sentence, it would have to be somebody who wasn't condemned themselves. Right? So the truth is, only Jesus has ever lived this life without breaking God's laws and being selfish towards his fellow man. Muhammad didn't claim this and nobody claims that about Muhammad. Moses didn't claim that and nobody claims that about Moses. The only person who has earned immunity from God's judgment is Jesus. That's why he is the only one who can rescue. But if Jesus is just a man, 
then one man's life is worth how many other people's lives? One. But if Isaiah was right in chapter 9, where Isaiah says that to us a child would be given, a son would be born, a baby boy that would be a son, who would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. If Jesus is God in the flesh, like the scriptures say, like he claimed, if he is, then how many people's lives is God's life worth? All of them. That's why this matters. Because while you're scrambling around, getting your rental properties, your residual income, and creating generational wealth, at some point, you will stand before God and he will say, are you innocent or guilty? And you will not lie. And you will say, like every other person who comes before him says, I am guilty. And then, bro, what's your generational wealth going to do for you then? You got nothing. Nothing. That's why this matters. Sorry. I'm really a shy person. And the third thing I learned from these ladies is that you get to share Jesus. Luke 24, verse 9. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. And it was Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. It wasn't even Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Again, another discrediting detail. doesn't make sense if they made it up. The only explanation for why they would put it in there that the disciples thought Jesus was nonsense, the resurrection, is that that's actually what they thought. That's the only reason why they, like, they're telling the truth. It's the only reason, like, that's the only thing that explains that detail. So they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look, just in case. Remember, Peter's got, he's got like an image. He's, he's already made like promises to Jesus he didn't keep, right? Now, John tells us that when Peter got up to run to the tomb, that John got up and ran with him. And then John writes in his narrative of this part of the story that he passed Peter and got there first. <laughs> in the canon of Scripture, John wanted everybody to know that Peter's slower than him. Stooping in, Peter looked and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again. You would think excited. He goes home again, wondering what the freak is happening right now. Still didn't believe. Mary, Joanna, and Mary were not responsible for Peter's belief, only that they shared the story. That's it. And truthfully, I'm not responsible for whether or not you believe either. That ain't my job. My job is just to tell the story. You're responsible for what you do with it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone and new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brings us back to himself through Jesus. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are, so I am, so you get to be Jesus's ambassador. God then gets to make his appeal through us. So we speak for Jesus when we plead, please just come back to God. 
For God made Jesus who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Jesus. And this is all I'm responsible for. I want to wrap it up with a quote from C.S. Lewis, who's really famous. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a very devoted, intellectual atheist who was best friends with a very devoted, avowed Christian who wrote the Lord of the Rings series. You guys know Lord of the Rings? That's J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien was a very committed, devoted follower of Jesus. His best friend was C.S. Lewis, a very devoted and very committed atheist. And they used to go to this pub uh, called the Inklings. I think the pub is still there in Oxford. And they would argue theology as friends, not contentiously, but they would just debate. C.S. Lewis ends up becoming a devoted follower of Jesus. And then he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, which his defense on how a rational, intelligent person can actually come to the conclusion that there is a God who did show up in the person of Jesus, dying on the cross and rose from the dead. And he shows you all of this, actually not from the scriptures, but from just the evidence that he came to, which brought him to a different place in, in his heart. It's the number one book I would recommend outside the Bible. And, and in this, he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. If true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not. That has nothing to do with philosophy. That doesn't even have anything to do with theology. That's history. Either Jesus really did raise from the dead or he did not. If he did not, then none of this matters and we are all wasting our time. But if he did, nothing in the entire world is more important than what you do next. Nothing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the opportunity that Mary, Joanna, and Mary gave everybody else an opportunity to decide for yourself. So I'm going to ask everybody if you would bow your head. If you will place your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the only thing that pays off your debt before a holy and righteous God, then tell him you trust him. Ask him to forgive you and save you for every stupid thing you've ever done. God, take it all out of my heart. Give me a clean slate. Wash me from that sin. God, help me to follow you with the rest of my life. I am all in. I am your man. I am your girl. Make that your prayer. If you're already a devoted follower of Jesus, then I want you to think about your friends who are not yet. Every one of us have close friends, people that we genuinely love and care about. And we get the opportunity over the course of this next year to enter into conversations that they will probably start. Everybody talks about religion. It's just that they only want to talk about religion to people that they're cool with. Your job as a follower of Jesus is to be the person that they're cool with. And when they bring up the conversation, just keep it going. All you're responsible for is your story. We don't force this on anybody, cram it down anybody's throat. We just share our story. They do with it what they want. 
but I want you to pray for them. How cool would it be if they actually came with you next year? So can you pray for someone else this Easter? God, let your will be done in each one of our lives so that your will can be done through our lives. This is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen.